Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Frey Podcast, brought to you by thefrey.com, a place for women who want more from life. This is what I want, this is what I need, if you don't have to go, I can set you free, are you going? Welcome to today's podcast episode. It's a solo one and I'm going to chat with you about a couple of the things I feel that I've really learned over the past nearly nine years of living mum life. So the boys are turning nine at the end of November and I can't quite believe that next year they'll be double digits and I feel like they're so grown up. I was just saying over on Instagram stories today actually, I was just referencing the conversations that the boys and I have been having recently and how I'll find myself talking with the kids about, you know, topics like sexuality. And one of them was talking about how, you know, one of his friends, you know, they're all the same age, but one of his friends had broken up with his girlfriend and how he felt like he had to really be his friend's psychologist. And I was like, what is going on? It feels like I'm having conversations with proper, like proper preteens, where in my mind they're still so young, but they are growing up. And I guess I'm growing too as as I go along and go through life with them. So I will get stuck into that in just a moment. Two things I wanted to quickly touch on. One is at the end of this episode, I am going to include a sneak peek of the audio or a sneak listen, I guess, of the audio component of surviving separation. So if this interests you, stay tuned and listen to the last 10 or so minutes because it's just, yeah, a bit of a sneak listen. I wanted to include this during like this period because We have the sale price, the launch price. We also have that special offer whereby if you buy Surviving Separation, you go into the draw to win one of two $500 gift cards, which I think will just be so useful at this time of year. So that is at the end of the episode if you want to listen to it. And I also have a recommendation for you. Now, this is not sponsored. This is because I planned on doing a gift guide this year for the fray. I was going to recommend maybe six or seven products. I was going to seek out discount codes for all of them, create a podcast episode, an actual digital gift guide. But then things changed and we had to quickly change over staff members and we had so much happening with Jordan moving to Western Australia and launching Surviving Separation and launching our Venti podcast membership as well that we had to take some things off the table. And the gift guide was unfortunately one of those things that was like lowest hanging fruit, what's essential, what's non-essential. Okay, that's not essential. We can take that off the table just because of the backwards and forth that would be involved in reaching out to brands and the actual digital creation and so on and so forth. But before we took it off the table, one thing I knew I wanted to include was a silky robe. You know, if I could just choose one thing like one thing that makes a big difference to me at the end of the day it's honestly having a shower moisturizing and putting on a silky robe I would even go a bridge further and say matching underwear in a silky robe but even without that just the feel of a silky robe going on really does help to drop me into my feminine it helps to me it helps me excuse me to remind myself that the day is changing i'm entering a different state a different part of the day i'm transitioning out of work mode or out of mum mode i'm transitioning into me me mode i want to feel like me and as trivial or as surface level as it might sound robes do that for me you know when you go away and you stay somewhere nice and you put on that heavy toweling robe and you feel like a different person or you just feel relaxed that's what a silk robe does for me 
And so long story short, I put the call out there on social media and said, I'm looking for a robe recommendations. And a couple of people recommended this one and I'm going to share it with you, but this is not sponsored. I reached out to this brand and said, Hey, I want to put you in the gift guide. They said, cool. I mean, let me just tell you about the brand, I guess. So it's James, J-A-Y-M-E-S. So if you go to james.com.au, James with a Y, in there and search for their Winnie gown. They have it in two colors. There's a black one or like a kind of creamy one as well. Um, the description says it's the dreamiest silk gown made for romantic nights and lazy mornings. The gown will have you feeling oh so beautiful with intricate lace detail to make it a true under James piece be at home in style. So it has feathered lace detailing around the arms. It's a kimono style. It's a short one, which I think is nice. Sorry, my washing machine in the background. I'll turn that off in a second. It's a short one, which I think is nice for our climate here in Australia. I do love the idea of a long one as well. I've got my eyes peeled for a long version, but this one is beautiful. So it's in black or eggshell is the other color. Um, and it is actually marked down to half price. If you do want to spoil yourself or spoil a loved one in your life, that's it. That's all I've got in terms of a gift guide this year. Next year, hopefully it will make it, but we just had so many things on our plate. But I love, love, love my James robe. I wear it every night. I've even been sleeping in it some nights. It's so silky. It's just beautiful on. All right, I've got to go turn that washing machine off and then I shall get stuck into my mum life episode with you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm back. The world's most annoying washing machine has been turned off. So I have nine reflections that I want to share with you just because the boys are turning nine and because if I didn't limit it, it would just go on and on and on forever because I think that's the thing with parenting is there is so much stuff that goes along with it. The lessons are never ending. It's always evolving. The moment you think you have a handle on what's in front of you and what's going on is the moment that everything changes. As anyone who has a bub in their lives will know. The moment that you're like, yes, I'm getting into the swing of this age group, they change, they evolve, they move out of it. And it's a really interesting thing. Of course, like I'm, I recognize I'm only nearly nine years into parenting and the conversations and the reflections I'll have will keep evolving and keep growing. But it's an interesting thing like this age group because I can see the boys pulling away in some areas and I can see how important their peers are, how important social uh, relationships are to them. And I can see them trying to just figure out their own identity within the family unit but also just like for themselves as well it's interesting this age where they still need me so much in so many ways but in a lot of ways they don't you know they're quite self-sufficient in terms of getting their own breakfasts um, in terms of they know their way around a desktop computer they know how to use the remote like they of course they know those things they're nine-year-olds but you know, they don't need me at all at shower time. And that sounds like a silly thing to say, but for the first couple of years of their life, like bath time was such a big part of my life too. It was just something that had to be done, particularly with two babies and two toddlers. And, you know, you start to realize some of those pillars of your routine and your relationship with ki- with your kids it just slowly changes and you don't remember when the last time was that they needed me to run the bath for them or when the last time was that I wrapped them up in a towel because they're at the age where they can get their towel themselves and do it themselves. 
you know I even just like with contribution like I even see such a difference every morning they put away the dishes that are left out you know we've washed them the night before and then they're left in the dish dryer and they know that they're not allowed to have any screen time at all unless those dishes are put away and so I'll wake up to hearing them having conversations in the kitchen putting the dishes away and it's like yeah I don't even need to prompt you guys to do that you just know that's part of the deal and here you are you two individuals having this conversation while you sometimes literally throw the cutlery in the cutlery drawer so there's lots of changes happening and they happen slowly but then all of a sudden one day you're like whoa how did we get here how did we get from you know two babies two toddlers that needed me so much to now these nearly nine-year-old boys who have their own uh, identities and their own capabilities so anyway a couple of things that spring to mind when I think about nine years of mum life. The first, and this will be no surprise to any listening, but the first is just that sleep is king. Sleep is the most important thing for babies, toddlers, and, and children. If they're sleeping well and you're sleeping well, everything else that goes on is so much more manageable and you do have a shot in hell at being the parent that you want to be. Nice and simple, sleep is king. Next up, again, if you listen to my Instagram stories, if you've listened to this podcast before, no surprise I'm including this one, but I have to because it's just so relevant. I talk about this a lot. I talk about the entry fee to your children's world as a concept. So the entry fee in quote to their what, to their world. What I mean by this is at all stages of life with everyone that we're in relationship with, but especially our children, we want to stay connected to them. We want them to trust us, to know us, to tell us the important things, to be vulnerable with us and to feel safe. And to really foster that connection, we have to do exactly that. We have to stay connected to them. And so at all ages and stages of their development, we are paying an entry fee in the way that we act the way that we respond or don't respond, the way we engage or don't engage with our children. So what I mean, I guess, to be very clear is when we have a baby, the entry fee to their world, to connection, is often doing things like laying on the play mat next to them. It's pulling funny faces. It's blowing bubbles at them. It's talking to them. It's you know, carrying them outside and letting them experience leaves on a bush for the first time or watching them look up at a plane for the first time or dipping their little baby toes into the pool. Then as they become toddlers, like the entry fee into their world could be through joining them for, you know, a play in the sandpit or making some Play-Doh or slime it could be playing with some trucks and banging the trucks into one another it could be watching diggers on a work site when you're really not interested in them but you know it's important to your toddler and you love and value that connection you have with them as they get older that entry fee to their world is still just as important in so many ways but I think it becomes less desirable as a parent because they begin to find interests in things that you just find it hard to get your head around or that you just find plain boring, um, that you just are exhausted by, you don't want to engage in. Maybe it's that your child wants to play the exact same imaginary game all the time or tell you the exact same stories all the time or maybe it's Pokemon, like it was in our house for a little while. You know, right now it's all about wizards for one and animals for the other. And as much as I love my boys, I just don't really care about facts about iguanas or facts about the Dragon Prince show or spells. Like that's not stuff that lights me up. <laughs> it takes like a lot of mental energy sometimes to keep paying that entry fee of being interested in those things. But I understand that's what it is. It's an entry fee to their world and their connection. And with primary aged children, the things in particular, and, and younger than primary age, primary school aged, excuse me, 
But one of the things to keep in mind and that I had to really learn and understand is that when a child is interested in something, they identify with it. They are interested because they feel a connection. They feel an ide- like they identify with that thing for whatever reason, you know, and it can be a bit of an abstract concept when we're talking about Pokemon, but it could be the hero's journey of it all. It could be that they connect to the rebellious streak or the adventure or whatever it is. And if we are dismissive of that as parents, they can feel quite hurt and quite rejected, and they might then be less likely to engage in connection with us as they continue to age. And you know, you are going to separate from your child in so many ways as they get older. Their peers become more important. They will want to pull away from you. But to keep that uh, connection, that fiber strong between the two of you, because it's so valuable, it's so valuable for both of you, keep paying that entry fee to their world. And, you know, I've said this on Instagram stories as well, too. Like I think about my own parents. If my dad was to call me and say, hey, what podcasts are you recording today? Tell me about the guests. I would feel so valuable and so valued, excuse me, and so seen by him. And I would feel great about him paying that entry fee into my world, even though I know it's not something he's interested in, really. You know, he could care less about podcasting as a concept. But if he was to turn to me and actually be very interested in the work I'm doing, that would feel great. So that entry fee, I think, applies to so many relationships in our life, our friendships sometimes, um, our romantic relationships sometimes, but certainly that parental relationship. Number three, there will always, like always be things that you wonder if you should have done differently. I don't think that there are any parents who get to any part of their parenting journey and they are like, you know what? I did everything perfectly. I think I did everything exactly how I should have done it. Everyone, I think, is going to have moments of doubt where they're like, oh, maybe I should have done that differently. Maybe I would do that differently. But I think that we're just doing the best uh, with the tools and the knowledge that we have at the time. Uh, and the mental capacity that we have at the time. And you have to move on and you have to know that you're never going to get everything right. Like an example, I can give you two examples actually that come to mind for me. One that I reflect on that I would do differently is I would do baby led weaning instead of purees because my boys um, were, especially through toddlerhood and even now as you know, nearly nine-year-olds, they're pretty uh, limited in the things that they're willing to try and the things that they enjoy food-wise. And I really do wonder if I'd done baby-led weaning. And again, there are going to be parents out there who are listening and they're like, nah, we did baby-led weaning and my kid is super fussy still, so it's not a fix-all. But I think as a parent, as a mum especially, it's so tempting to take responsibility for anything that could be perceived as a shortcoming. You know, you want to be like, oh... They don't eat a wide variety of food and that's my fault because I didn't do baby led weaning. So it's probably a bit of that in the mix as well. The other thing is because I had two at once, there were times when I just did things for them because it was easier. You know, it's much easier to tie up both of their shoelaces and get out the door than it is to sit and be patient while they do it themselves. It's much easier for me to grab their clothes and lay them out and know that they'll get dressed and will be out the door on time than it was to encourage them to do certain things. Now, I think I am pretty good at the contribution stuff, but there are certainly things that I've done far too long for the boys, and that was just because I established early on that I was going to do it, so I really set the tone for it because it was easier. So there are always going to be things you reflect on and you're like, yeah, maybe could have done that better, could have done that differently, but who knows. Um... Next up, there are times in parenting where you just can't fix whatever your child is going through and you just have to be there to witness it and validate it for them. You know, especially in toddlerhood, so often parents will get in touch and say, my child's having a meltdown, I want to help them, you know, or things that are difficult at school. You know, like if your kid really doesn't want to go to school as a parent, 
you want to fix that. You want to take that pain for them. But there are just times when you can't. You know, in the school example, especially with one of my boys, when he's like, I don't want to go to school. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to have a bad day. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. I understand how that feels. That's really hard. And sometimes we do have to do things in life that aren't, you know, great. It might be a shitty day. You know, I'll never say to him, chin up. You don't know how today's, you know, chin up. Today's going to be the best day ever. You're going to have a great day. Like I'll never give him that rhetoric because I think that that can be quite invalidating for someone who is experiencing anxiety. So there are just times in parenting where you can't quite fix it and you just have to stick by, validate and hold space for them and know that they will come through it eventually. Next up. Something I am grateful that I did, and it's probably like an uncomfortable thing. I actually skipped over this one. This one was up earlier and I'm like, oh, it kind of feels a bit um, uncomfortable to say things that you're grateful or that you're proud that you did as a parent. Why is that? Why do we find it so hard to be like, I did this and I did it well, but here we go. One thing I am grateful I did with the boys was I really stuck by my decision to not introduce screens before the age of three. And I know that someone's listening right now and they're going to go, fuck, I feel really judged because I have. Please know that I have no interest at all in judging any parents. We all do the best that we can with what we have available to us. Not to say available to us in like a privileged way or like, oh, how unfortunate that you didn't know that you shouldn't do that. That's not at all how it's intended i'm aware someone will probably hear it that way but that's not the spirit it is shared in at all what i mean by that is i had two babies two toddlers at once i didn't have an older child or a younger child who i had to entertain if i did things might have been different i didn't have the pressures of having to get out the door for work i worked from home i worked around the kids which truthfully is something else I could probably add to the list of something I might do differently is I have always lived my life around the kids. And whilst that's in line with my values and I am proud in some ways that I've been able to do that, being able to be so available for them. I also think it sets them up to think that I am available to them 100% of the time. And they didn't necessarily have a concept of me working when they were younger because I would always do it during their sleep times or at night. But that's that's a whole other thing. But anyway, what I'm saying is I looked at the research. I looked at the research, the recommendations. I did my own investigating on what I was comfortable with and I made that decision not to introduce screens at that age and I am happy that I did that. And I say that because I often do see young kids having tech meltdowns where they're so reliant upon their devices, upon mum or dad's phone, upon their iPads. You know, I see babies with iPads in prams and things like that. And whilst I recognize and understand fully why that is an attractive option, I also am glad that I, I didn't do that because the boys have never had a tech meltdown ever. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that the correlation between those two things doesn't necessarily mean there's like the cause there doesn't, but I think it is in this case, causation doesn't always, correlation doesn't always equal causation is what I'm trying to say. So maybe they're just the sort of kids that aren't going to have tech meltdowns, but I do tend to credit the fact that they didn't have screens at a young age and didn't build that reliance on screens and stimulations and entertainment into the fact that now at nearly nine years old, when they have their half an hour of screens of a morning on the computer, because that's what they might do. If I say it's time to get off, they're like, yep. And they just get straight off. I've always been able to take them to the shops and they will be fine. You know, like they have just always been able to sit in a trolley and not be entertained by a screen because they never had that. And I do think it's important that kids learn to tolerate boredom. You know, as adults, we don't tolerate boredom well. We stand in a line and we're on our phone because it's available to us. But
but we have an adult brain. We have a fully developed brain. A baby and a toddler does not. A child does not. And, you know, if you Google it, look into the research. There's all of this interesting information surrounding the fact that, you know, if a toddler watches a ball be thrown on a screen, they don't actually get the same thing from it as they would watching someone throw a ball in real life because it's broken down frame by frame and it's just fascinating. But anyway, I do attribute the fact that we've never had a tech meltdown, that the kids always jump off screens the moment I ask them to. They still now ask if they can have screen time. Like they will never just go and put the TV on. They'll say, can we watch TV, please? Um, And I, I think it's because I've always been quite mindful of that for their brains. Um, So anyway, there we go. I've included that one, even though it made me feel a bit uncomfortable because I understand it will be received in the way it's not intended. Next up, give and take and contribution. I've always operated with the kids with the premise of give and take and that we are a family unit working together. It's not a dictatorship. I am not above them. Um, Yes, I am wiser than them and I am going to protect them and look after them. But I encourage and invite them to share their thoughts and feelings and contribute towards the family unit and the space. Give and take when they were toddlers looked like if we went to the shops, you know, they would get a little play on the playground or a little explore. I wouldn't rush them. I wouldn't move them on from tasks because I understood that I was going to ask them to sit in the pram for an hour while I did groceries, or I was going to need them to sit in a trolley while I went to the post office and waited in line. And so that give and take, that reciprocity has been a through line always in my relationship with the kids. And I've always respected them. And I think that they respect me because of that. We have a very uh, respectful and loving connection for sure. And that's where contribution comes into it, you know. Whilst I said earlier, there were things that I've done for them for far too long just because it was easier. I've always spoken to them about contribution. You know, packing up your toys isn't helping mummy. It's not mummy's job to put your toys away. Those toys are your responsibility. They go away. That's contribution. And it's age appropriate as well. And also contribution in terms of energy and spirit. Like a recent example Brendan has recently taken up baseball. Who knew that a baseball game goes for two hours? Not us. So the boys and I went along for the first day and we've gone along every time since, but we were there for like five, over five hours on that first day. And that's not exciting for kids that don't care about sports. My boys just do not care about sports in that way. And, you know, we we bought Brooks, bought, we, we bought, brought, we brought, some books for them to read at the field and they were happy they had their books they had their snacks they had each other there's a playground there they were fine but you know they might have moments of being like this is a really long day and this kind of sucks I'm like yeah it does kind of suck you know I can see that it kind of sucks for you but there are times as adults that the things we do for you kind of sucks and we just do it because we are a family unit and they'll go like oh yeah yeah and they'll shift their energy um and I'm always so appreciative when that happens. And I do think that goes back to having respect for them and them being respectful of the family unit as well. Next up, number seven, parenting can be very triggering. Parenting can truly be a vehicle for so much growth and self-awareness and understanding and compassion because you come face to face with your own fears You come face to face with your own like just personal fears, but also fears surrounding your own mortality. Um, Having a child is such a huge responsibility that I think at different times and to varying degrees, you feel the weight of being their whole world and of understanding how important you are to them. You face your own insecurities and your own perceived shortcomings because often your kids will have some of your traits and they will mirror them back to you and it can be uncomfortable and confronting. And often the things that trigger you in parenting are directly linked to the way that you feel about those aspects 
that exist within yourself. So maybe your child is really shy and you find yourself becoming really frustrated by that. Um, Often that will be because you feel that you feel that as well and you find it intolerable within yourself. So parenting has triggers and triggers are often opportunities, like they're opportunities to look at what's coming up for yourself. And those opportunities mean that you can actually gain awareness and understanding and grow. Next up, the power in owning when you get it wrong is so, uh, so valuable. It's such a valuable dynamic. And what I mean by that is in parenting, you will get it wrong at times. You will lose your patience, get pushed over the edge, feel stretched to the absolute limit. You might raise your voice, respond in a way you're not proud of, whatever it is. But the power of owning when you get it wrong is such a gift. It really is. If you can be vulnerable enough to go to your child and say, hey, I just want to talk to you about something. When I raised my voice earlier, that actually wasn't about you. That was about something that was going on for me. And I personally was feeling at my limit. And of course, it depends on the age. You're not going to have this conversation with a nine month old. But saying you're wrong when you get it wrong, because what that does is it builds trust, trust between the two of you. You know, it's one thing if you get it wrong, but then you keep projecting and you make your child feel like they're responsible for your stuff. That's damaging. You know, if you're stomping around and being kind of an asshole to your child because you've had a bad day, that child is so um, dependent on you and you are so their world that they're going to internalize it and think that they are responsible for it unless you go and explain to them what's happening. Let them know you have other pressures. And again, age appropriate, you're not going to sit your four-year-old down and say, well, I'm really stressed that we're not going to make the mortgage. Sorry, squeaky chair. Um, You're not going to sit your four-year-old down and go, I'm really stressed that I'm not going to make the mortgage repayments this month. But you can say to a four-year-old, I'm really sorry I raised my voice. That must have been scary for you. I didn't mean to raise my voice. Let me give you a hug. I was actually feeling a little bit worried about other things and I reacted in a way that I'm not proud of. Not only does that build trust in the relationship that you have, that reciprocity with your child, it also humanizes you to them and it allows them to feel validated and to not be responsible for the emotional stuff that is going on because they're not responsible for it at all. I would also add to that to not punish your kids when they tell you the truth, right? You can be disappointed in your kids and your kids can be disappointed in you. That is fine. But I would steer clear of having like a massive angry reaction when your child tells you the truth. I always think about when the boys were about three years old one of them pulled the curtains down and we'd had this conversation, stop touching the curtains, stop pulling on the curtains, like stop trying to climb up the curtains basically. And I went into his room and the curtains had been pulled down, like reefed out of the wall. And he was adamant. He didn't do it. Nope, 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 nope. He's three years old. Three-year-old boys are a different beast. And we went around in circles and I didn't escalate. I didn't get angry, but I stayed consistent. I really want you to tell me what happened. All right, when you're ready to tell me the truth, I'm ready to listen. And after a little while, he said to me, okay, mom, I'm ready to tell you the truth. I pulled the curtains down. And in that moment, I had a couple of choices. One of those choices could have been to yell and say, I knew that you did that. Why didn't you tell me the first time? You know, to punish him, to get upset. Or, and this is what I did, And I must have just been having a good parenting day that day. Um, But what I did was I got down, got to his height because they're tiny when they're three. Gosh, I miss them being that size. But got down to his eye level and gave him a hug and said, thanks so much for telling me. You want to help me put these things back up? Because I didn't want to teach him the lesson in that moment that telling the truth is going to equal a worse consequence. Now, there are going to be times in life when that is the case. 
when telling the truth results in a consequence and uncomfort, like discomfort, that's going to happen. But I wanted to really foster the notion that he could disclose the truth to me and I would accept it graciously. So I think there's a little bit of power in that as well. And just remembering as parents, we're going to disappoint our kids and they're going to disappoint us, but that doesn't mean they love us less or we love them less. I think normalizing that people in our lives are going to disappoint us at times is a healthy thing to do because to be empirical and say, oh, I'll never disappoint you and you could never disappoint me. It's not true. And it's not really a fair representation of how adult relationships work. So there will be times when I'll say to the boys, I'm quite disappointed that you made that choice. I still love you. I love you endlessly, but that is disappointing. And I don't mind if they say it to me as well. You know, they might say, mom, I'm really disappointed that we have to sit through a baseball game. I'll be like, yeah, that's okay. I get it. I hear you. It's just normalizing and validating uncomfortable emotions because when we don't do that, we can then engage in behaviors that are detractor type behaviors. And I talk about these in surviving separation because going through a marriage breakdown, um, a breakdown of any sorts, sometimes you don't want to feel the pain. So you will pick up behaviors, engage in habits, practices to numb out or to just avoid that discomfort, but it's still going to be there and it's going to keep popping back up and popping back up and popping back up until you deal with it. So in childhood, if we can teach our kids to sit with uncomfortable feelings in a way that they still feel supportive, supported, I think that's a true gift to them. Last but not least, love, like love as a parent and love in general, and this concept came from the book Conversations on Love by Natasha Lunn, but love is a series of losses and so is parenting. You know, it is a series of losses. You have this baby that you lose to toddlerhood, you know, and of course you're not really losing them because they're there. But that stage, that season goes and then you lose how much they depend on you and you go to the next thing and then you might lose other parts of your relationship to them. And that's part of the deal. That's part of being a healthy parent is to accept that you are going to have a series of losses as you progress with your child. Just the other week, Brendan and I went to see the love sermon with Clementine Ford and Libby Donovan. I want to say Donovan. Um, It was brilliant. It was such a great night. We didn't know what to expect, but we went along and there was not a dry eye in the house. It was wonderful. And at the end of the love sermon, one of the concepts that Clementine spoke about was how she realized as a parent, she wasn't meant to swim alongside her son. She realized she would have to go through life and deliver him to somewhere, you know, like she would, she wasn't swimming next to him anymore. She was like, her role was to deliver him to the land, to places that she can't go with him eventually. As parents, we will eventually detach and we will experience losses of the attachment that we have with our children and losses of the relationship that we have at present. And it evolves into something different, but what once was is lost. It doesn't exist other than in our memories. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because sometimes parenting feels so arduous and so never ending, but it does change and it does evolve and you are going to go through those series of losses and that's our role. That's what we're here for. That's what we're doing. Just recently, I was chatting with one of my girlfriends who has just had her second bub. And she said, this time it's so much more uh, enjoyable because she knows that every hard season is going to end. And I think with our firstborns, we, we, don't of, we don't often have that perspective about all of the losses that we're going to have along the way. We're so in the trenches. It's so all consuming that we can't lift our head up and understand that everything is going to end. You know, even just the other day, Brendan was like, oh, he probably could be doing that for himself um, about something for one of the kids. And I was like, yeah, he could. And again, I know that this is in contrast to what I said earlier. 
But I'm like, he could do that. But also there's going to be one day when he doesn't want me to do it anymore. So I'm just going to do it because I don't know when that day is going to be. You know, I used to be able to carry the boys around at the same time. And I certainly cannot pick both of them up at once now and walk with them. Maybe I could do it standing if someone passed them to me and they monkeyed on. But I don't know when the last time was that I carried both of them. It's a series of losses. So anyway, oh, actually, the other thing I was going to say is parenting is relentless. That's the thing, right? Relentless in energy and servitude, but also relentless in the love that you have for your kids. It is a relentless type of love. It's just ongoing. All right. So as promised at the start of this episode, stay tuned because I'm going to include a snippet of surviving separation. Remember right now it is at the launch price. Remember it has seven and a half hours of audio. If you love podcasts, if you are considering going through a marriage breakup, if you're curious about what your friends are going through when they go through breakups, um, surviving separation I think is such a great resource, whether you're at that stage of just considering it, maybe you're just curious, or maybe you are right in the thick of it, or maybe you are a couple of years post breakup, but you still haven't quite managed to find compassion and to heal and to move forward. So stay tuned, listen in to Surviving Separation. And as always, I do really appreciate you choosing to listen to the Frey podcast. Chapter 1. Nursing Your Broken Heart Heartbreak. There are so many ways a breakup can happen. Sometimes it's out of the blue and unexpected, and other times it's a slow, gradual collapsing of what once was. There are breakups that involve other people, and breakups that are amicable but still sad. A broken heart can take many forms and it can vary in severity. Many, in fact, most adult relationships come to an end with both parties recognizing the need for it to end, that each person has been aware of the demise, whether it was fast or slow. There are typically conversations, therapy, and obvious undeniable friction informing both parties that all is not well. It's less common for a relationship to end completely out of the blue. It is not as common for someone to be completely blindsided, but it's not unheard of because we've all heard stories of a seemingly happy partner leading a second life or a cataclysmic life event occurring that shake things up to such a degree that an individual changes and decides they want a new life. Heartbreak is not reserved purely for those who are broken up with. Heartbreak hurts those who are doing the actual breaking up and those who have fallen together in a heap and come to a joint decision to part ways. There are countless variables and unique considerations in a breakup. Some breakups contain the same or similar situations like growing apart, a lack of emotional connection, poor communication, a difference in values, infidelity or resentment. However, Each breakup will have its own unique combinations and considerations. It could be to do with your financial situation, your extended family, the age of your children, cultural differences or religious reasons as well. While your personal circumstance is unique to you and there is no way to list out every single possible dynamic There are some universal experiences in heartbreak, experiences that can span across a multitude of reasons why or how the relationship ended across cultures, ages, and more. Heartbreak is a very human experience. We are all born with a desire to love and to be loved in return. We're designed to seek companionship. It is only a small selection of people who do not ever experience the pain of a broken heart. So just know as you move through this guide, you're not alone in your pain. A broken heart or heartbreak or heartache is a metaphor for intense emotional stress 
or pain one feels at experiencing great and deep longing. It's a cross-cultural concept, often cited with reference to unreciprocated or lost love. If a broken heart means to lose love, we need to ask, what is love? There are countless ways to try and explain love, but the definition seems to be that love is an intense feeling of deep affection, a feeling of warm personal attachment. Love is so much more than that, though. It's an all-encompassing experience. It's something that we are wired to seek out an intrinsic desire. Heartbreak is defined as a loss of love, which sounds so simple. A loss of love. But love is not one single simple thing to lose because heartbreak includes losing all of the things that fall under the love umbrella. The unspeakable moments, the intangible interactions and inherent parts of a relationship that can't be quantified but you feel them. It's a loss of companionship, a loss of laughter, of safety and certainty, a loss of a version of yourself that existed in that relationship, a loss of the future you thought that you were going to have. It's a loss of emotional and physical experiences, like that leg reaching out for you in bed and the shoulder to cry on. It's a loss of the day-to-day rhythm and shared jokes connected to your history. In some cases, if a breach of trust is involved, it can feel like parts of the relationship might never have been real to begin with. You can start to second-guess so many things in that instance. There's a lot to lose or to have lost. It's so much more than just a deep affection or warm attachment. The end of an adult relationship is the end of a million things. We know love is an experience and we feel it physically in our bodies. So it makes sense that when we feel heartbreak physically, it hurts. It can hurt enough to trigger depression or depression-like symptoms. Breakups can trigger prolonged and severe emotional distress. Experiencing depressive and other symptoms following the end of a relationship is sometimes diagnosed as an adjustment disorder with depressed mood, also sometimes referred to as situational depression. Did you know there is also an actual heart condition that can occur due to the related side effects of a stressful breakup? It's called broken heart syndrome, and it's a temporary heart condition that's often brought on by stressful situations and extreme conditions. The condition can also be triggered by a serious physical illness or surgery. People with broken heart syndrome may have sudden chest pain or think they're having a heart attack. Broken heart syndrome affects just part of the heart temporarily, disrupting the heart's usual pumping function. The rest of the heart continues to work properly or may even squeeze and contract more forcefully. The symptoms of broken heart syndrome are treatable and it usually reverses itself in days or weeks. Now, if you are physically in pain, get yourself to your doctor immediately. Discussing situational depression or anxiety with your doctor is also a really smart idea during a difficult breakup. If you're struggling to move through the daily normal, quote unquote, normal motions for an extended period of time, it's wise to seek medical guidance and support. I have definitely relied on my GP during difficult times, and I'm so glad that I did that because we have to mother ourselves, especially when we don't feel like we can. If you cannot find the energy to will yourself into seeking the help you need, please open up and tell a friend or a family member that you trust. If you don't have a trusted confidant in your life, then you need to utilize the things that are available, like a call to the hotline numbers designed to support people in crisis, and we have included those in Surviving Separation. Even when the despair 
that you are feeling is so deep and immense, you have to push enough to get the care that you need to cope. A breakup can light up the same neural pathways as physical pain, and this has been proven in brain scans of people who were fresh from an unwanted breakup and then shown images of their ex-partners. There was also evidence, interestingly enough, of taking over-the-counter pain medication improving the painful sensation and state of being, which I think is just so fascinating. A breakup is lighting up the same neural pathways as physical pain. No wonder we feel oh so awful during this time in our life. This is what I want. This is what I need. If you don't have to go, I can set you free. Are you going to make a move? Are you going to come and see? Whatever you want to do, you know what's called me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.